morning. The scripture we're going to hear this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And just a little bit of background, Corinth was a major cultural center uh, in ancient Greece. And uh, the fledgling church there, while strong, was also going through a difficult time. There were internal divisions. There were a lot of power struggles going on. And not only that, they were also faced with constant pressure and persecution uh, by the empire that was hostile uh, to Christ and what Christ represented. So this is a church that is experiencing some pain. And Paul, who is their pastor, writes to them, Uh, with these words of comfort and assurance. It's from chapter 4, starting in verse 5. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it it is the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God In the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Of all the difficult questions about God and about our faith in God, by far the most asked question is, why does God allow so much pain and suffering? The Barna Group recently conducted a survey in which people were asked, if you could ask God just one question, what question would you ask? And the question of pain and suffering and the why of pain and suffering was by far the number one response on that survey. It's this huge question in our day, but one that Christians, for some reason, sometimes tend to avoid. What's interesting about that, though, is that the Bible itself, rather than trying to sweep the reality of pain and suffering under the rug... The Bible itself is full of very direct expressions 
of anguish and sorrow and confusion about pain and suffering. The wisdom literature, for example, the book of Job and much of Psalms and Ecclesiastes is more about this than anything else. One of the difficulties, I think, in addressing the topic of why God allows pain and suffering is that there are two distinct and two distinctly different arenas for the conversation to take place. One arena is the head. It's a rational, intellectual look at the topic, distant and detached from emotion. The other arena is the heart, right in the middle of all the emotions that come with pain and suffering. The heart context is when we or someone that we know is actually suffering. And that, of course, is not the time for heady theological discussion. The cry of why or where is God is not a cry looking for rational intellectual answers. It is a cry for empathy and a cry for compassion. In the heart context, in the heart arena, no amount of logic or rationale is sufficient. The distinction between the head and the heart on this topic is illustrated in the experience of C.S. Lewis, the British philosopher and author who, as you may know by now, I love to quote in sermons. I have what you might call a man crush on C.S. Lewis. He's a fascinating figure in that early in his life, he was an atheist. At age 15, describing himself as being very angry at God for not existing. His main objection to faith was his sense that God would not have created a world so faulty and frail. And his turn to Christian faith was a gradual one. One that he says he fought right up until the moment of conversion. In his words saying that he was brought to Christ, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. Lewis committed his life to Christ one night in 1931 after a long walk with his best friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. Two of Lewis's nonfiction works are The Problem of Pain and A Grief Observed. Both address the issue of how to understand faith in the context of all of the pain and suffering that we and others experience. They're on the same topic, but they're two very different works. The Problem of Pain was written in 1940, and its arena is The Head, an intellectual work on the topic of pain and suffering. A Grief Observed, though, was written 21 years later, following the death of Lewis's wife, Joy, and is much more a heart book. Lewis felt so vulnerable about the emotions that, that he expressed in A Grief Observed that it was originally released under a pseudonym. And in fact... Several friends of his actually gave him the book to help him through his grief over his wife's death. 
It was only after his death in 1963 that his author, the authorship was made known. A Grief Observed is a worthwhile book to read for someone journeying through their own grief. But this first part of the sermon is more like Lewis's The Problem of Pain, a more academic perspective on the question of why God allows pain and suffering more toward answering that question where it might be a stumbling block to someone coming to faith in God. To begin with, pain and suffering exist because we live in a broken world. It is not God's intent for his creation. Christianity teaches that there is a way that things are supposed to be, and that's a really important idea. There is a way that things are supposed to be, and that way does not include pain and suffering and evil. Their origin lies in the freedom that was given by God to humanity, a freedom that long ago was used in ways that marred God's original intent for creation and human relationships. C.S. Lewis writes about this. I quote, It is free will that has made evil possible. Why then did God give us free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of robots with no free will, pre-programmed to always choose the good, would hardly be worth creating. It would, no doubt, have been possible for God to remove by miracle the results of the first sin ever committed by a human being. But this would not have been much good unless he was prepared to remove the results of the second sin and of the third, and so on forever. Such a world, continually underpropped and corrected by divine interference would have been a world in which nothing important ever depended on human choice, and in which choice itself would soon cease. We're going to watch a video that attempts uh, to illustrate this point. An all-knowing God would know evil exists. An all-loving God would want to prevent evil from existing. An all-powerful God could prevent evil from existing. But evil does exist. (laughs) Now, given that the fourth proposition would appear to be undeniable, it can be inferred that one of the other three must be false, and thus there cannot be an all-knowing, all-loving, and all-powerful God. Checkmate. Or at least some people think that. However, not too long ago, an American philosopher named Alvin Carl Plantica put forth a new proposition that is intended to demonstrate that it is logically possible for such a god to create a world that does contain evil. This is how he summarized his defense. 
A world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do only what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. They do not do what is right freely. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore, he must create creatures capable of moral evil. And he can give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. C.S. Lewis would agree, saying, Imagine a wooden beam became soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carried lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. If the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. Continuing his defense, Plantinga says, As it turned out, sadly enough, some of the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom. This is the source of moral evil. The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against his goodness, for he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. So, even though God is all-powerful, it is possible that it was not in his power to create a world containing moral good, but no moral evil. Therefore, there is no logical inconsistency involved when God, although wholly good, creates a world of free creatures who chose to do evil. Clear as mud, right? The main, the main point is just this, that, that pain and suffering are not God's design or intent for us, but they are the consequence of humanity's disobedience in exercising what was a gift, which is our free will. Now, we also need to be careful here. I'm not suggesting that pain and suffering come to us because of some specific sin that we commit. There is actually, in another religious tradition, a doctrine called karma that is built around the idea that if you're experiencing pain now, that it's probably the result of a bad behavior in your past or some past existence. Now, karma is not in the Bible. There is no simple formula about everybody receiving happiness or suffering because they deserve it. Now, of course, some suffering is a consequence of bad decisions. You drink too much, you get behind the wheel of a car, you crash that car into a wall somewhere and suffer a debilitating injury. Yes, your actions directly resulted in your experiencing pain and suffering. But some other pain and suffering are the result of things like natural disasters and illness and disease occurring in our broken world. We live in a broken world where things like deadly hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis happen and where illness and disease exist and often seem to strike indiscriminately. Ancient Judaism actually had a saying, it rains alike on the just and the unjust. But all of that 
begs a question. Why doesn't God just step in and put an end to all of our suffering? We know that someday God will make all things new. In Revelation 21, the Apostle John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And so someday, in God's timing, God will indeed stop all the pain and suffering. But still the question out of our anguish over pain and suffering is why not now? Or why not this particularly terrible instance of pain and suffering Why didn't God stop the Holocaust, for example? We say, do we not, that if I were God, I would have stopped this. I would have prevented that from ever happening. So why doesn't God? I must admit that this is not a question that I have a satisfactory answer to. And I expect that humanity will not know the answer to this question on this side of eternity The only thing I can say is that if God were to remove all evil and suffering from this world, that we would all cease to exist. For we all, to varying degrees, contribute to the brokenness that we experience in this life. What we do know, what we do know is what has been revealed to us. And what has been revealed to us is the person of Jesus. We may not be able to adequately explain suffering, but in Jesus, we meet a God who meets us in our suffering and who on the cross freely stepped in and took upon himself all the suffering of humanity, past, present, and future, all of it, For all time. This is staggering news. There is no God, no other God in any religion like the God of Jesus. We could do a whole message just around the sufferings that Jesus experienced. He experienced the grief that comes with life in this world and with death. He made it clear that suffering is a result of the brokenness of all people, not a specific judgment for individuals. He wept at Lazarus' funeral. He experienced incredible anguish so that his sweat was like drops of blood in the hours before he died. He was tortured. He was mocked. He was humiliated by others. He was turned on and he was deserted by his closest friends. There's a reason that he's called a man of sorrows. He cried out in pain as he was crucified. He was bloodied and alone. Theologian John Stott puts it this way. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross 
nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. One final assertion that I can make is that Christian hope proclaims that God is up to something in our pain and suffering that we cannot even begin to imagine. This hope comes pulsing over and over again through the New Testament witness. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, for though outwardly we are wasting away, Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Put them on a scale, Paul says. Here is what we are going through now. Here is what lies before us. What lies before us is so great that compared, by contrast, whatever we are going through now can only be described as light and momentary. Now, this is, I think, an audacious statement to make. For so much of the suffering in our lives and in the world appear to be anything but light and momentary. But we must remember that Paul was not a comfortable suburbanite making this claim. Paul was whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, persecuted, ridiculed, imprisoned, executed. Paul had nothing. And his description of all of that is light and momentary. What he's saying, I think, is that for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of what lies before us, a new heaven and a new earth where God has made all things new, What we live through now can be described as light and momentary. Paul's saying that our suffering doesn't get erased. It doesn't get removed, but it gets redeemed. And the redemption of all things throughout all eternity will be more glorious than you can possibly imagine. So that whatever you are going through now, you don't lose heart. To everybody who is suffering, there is a promise given to you, and there is a hope to cling to. There is redemption that is waiting for you. And when it comes, we will say to each other throughout all eternity, light and momentary, light and momentary. He redeemed it all. God was up to something so good and so enormous, we had no idea, but now we know. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror, only dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know only in part, but then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. For the time being, we will not have all the answers, 
that we want. And so we cling to our Savior, who has walked the lonesome valley and who promises to carry us when we can no longer stand on our own. We bring all of our tears, all of our grief, all of our questions and doubt, all of our wasting away, all of our disappointments. We bring all of that to the foot of the cross. The foot of the cross, this place of ultimate suffering that has become, by the grace of a suffering God, the place of ultimate hope. And that is good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, we tread lightly when we come upon such a difficult and complex topic as pain and suffering. And Lord, we admit that we have questions and that we wrestle with you, Lord, to try and understand your purposes. And so do not let us despair, O God, but let us turn to you. Let us look at what you have revealed to us through your life and through your death and through your resurrection. That you are a God that is not distant from our pain and suffering. But that you are a God who has walked alongside us. Who understands what it feels like. And so we cling to the hope and to the promise that you will offer to us redemption for the pain and suffering in this world. That it will not be pointless. And we trust in your goodness. We trust in your love. We ask that it carry us this day and each day. In your name we pray. Amen.